This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpey, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today, we discuss Canada's role in the world and the Canadian-American relationship in the aftermath of the Trump administration. In order to explore that issue, we're fortunate to have with us today Bob Ray, the ambassador and permanent representative of Canada to the United Nations, a post he took up in August of last year. Mr. Ray served as Premier of Ontario from 1990 to 1995 and as interim leader of the Liberal Party of Canada from 2011 to 2013. He was elected to federal and provincial parliaments 11 times between 1978 and 2013. In October 2017, Mr. Ray was uh, appointed as Canada's special envoy to Myanmar. In this role, he engaged in diplomatic efforts to address the crisis in the country's Rakhine state. Then in March 2020, he was named by Prime Minister Trudeau to be Canada's special envoy on humanitarian and refugee issues. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today, Ambassador Bob Ray. Thank you very much, John. Good to be with you. Great to have you. Thanks for doing this. Um, So first question I would say is, uh, about Canada's role in the world. Canada has long had a reputation as one of the, the committed humanitarian countries on the planet. Could you tell us how you see Canada's role in the world today? Uh, sure. Uh, I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a, an interesting question for us as Canadians as well as well, as well, hopefully as for a few Americans. Um, I think the, uh, you know, the thing to remember about Canada is we're uh, a middle power. We're, our population's about 38 million right now. We, we, uh, we're, we, we have a, a large geographic space in the world. Um, but we're, uh, you know, we're not a major, uh, we're not a nuclear power. We're not a, a permanent member of the security council. Um, but we have since 1945, uh, played, um, as constructive a role as possible in the world. Uh, by virtue of uh, the fact that uh, we we were so critically engaged in World War II from 1939 to 1945, we were very much involved in uh, in building the alliance that uh, eventually uh, was successful. We lost a lot of our uh, young men and women in the war, uh, and, and and essentially we came of age uh, diplomatically 
uh, prior to that time, we had had very few representatives around the world. We had um, we'd been involved in the Versailles Treaty and so on, but but the years between the war were, wars were were not great ones for Canadian diplomacy. And then after forty five, we became very active, very active in the UN, very active in the creation of NATO, very active in uh, the reformation and change in the in the Commonwealth, the creation of La Francophonie. Uh, just up the, the entire sort of uh, international architecture of the world was one where Canada was always present and and uh, and active. Um, as a matter of uh, a biography, I, I I would say that my my dad was involved in that generation. He was became a public servant in 1940 uh, and was very very actively involved in Canadian foreign policy for for 40 years. So uh, I grew up in that in that world, uh, lived in Washington, lived in, uh, Geneva as a kid, uh, before coming back to university. So it felt very much part of my own sort of personal history. I think the, the humanitarian issue is critical big for us because the, what's happening in the world today is, uh, is, is so troublesome. We have more refugees today than we had in, in 1945. Uh, and we we have more displaced people than we've ever had uh, since since the end of the Second World War. Uh, and while there, we can all point to ways in which the world has been getting safer and better prior to COVID. Uh, we also have to say it's been marked by incredible disruptions and uh, and hardships. So creating and strengthening the architecture that helps us to resolve humanitarian issues is, is critically important. So we've been very much involved on the, the new, the new uh, global agreements on, on uh, internal displacement, on migration, uh, and on refugees, so-called global compact. Um, and, and we really do want to encourage the, the new administration in Washington to, to become more actively involved, not only with respect to uh, obviously, issues which are of immediate interest to the U.S. in terms of the southern border, but to understanding more globally how these events are uh, disruptive and and placing great great pressure on on the global system, on global security, but also placing a lot of a lot of pressure on on individuals and on families and on the humanitarian system more broadly. So this this leads nicely into the next question I wanted to ask, which is precisely what you know exactly are you trying to do as UN ambassador? What kind of objectives are you trying to achieve uh, in that role and in that position? Well, I think the first thing I mean is 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 anybody at the UN today, if you ask them, you know, what's your first priority? The answer is is COVID. The answer is dealing with the impacts of COVID on a global basis. So uh, the first impact is a health impact. We've We've seen some re- remarkable successes in a few countries, particularly you know your country and, and more recently in uh, in Israel and elsewhere, in vaccinating uh, the domestic population. Uh, but globally, we're we've got a long way to go to to get to a, a health resolution of this crisis. Uh, and the second is to understand that it's it's been absolutely devastating from the point of view of the world economy. And the impact on the world's peoples—it's uh, slowed us down from achieving anything like the Sustainable Development Goals before 2030. It's—it's uh, it's impacting uh, poverty. It's impacting women. It's impacting uh, whole countries and whole regions. And and that I think inevitably becomes a major preoccupation of our country at the UN. 
and and building the 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 again the capacity uh, of world institutions to be able to respond effectively to um, excesses of nationalism. We see it in terms of the vaccine vaccine nationalism. How do we create stronger international institutions to respond to this? How do we uh, re- really deal with the impacts? This, I think, is the is the first priority. But from my my previous work on refugee issues uh, on behalf of the government of Canada, I I, I feel quite strongly that uh, we we have to pay special attention not just to refugees but to the countries in which refugees are living. And I know in your country, as well as in mine, people frequently think of, well, refugees, the people who come to your door and ask to be taken in. And the answer is most 90%, 95% of the world's refugees are living in the global south. The place they go is is in their neighborhood. Uh, the Syrian, the vast majority of Syrian refugees are, are not coming to the United States or Canada, although Canada's taken in 65,000. But that's a drop in the bucket compared to the number of people who are living in Turkey, people who are living in Jordan, the people who are living in Lebanon, uh, and the people who are, are living internally displaced inside Syria. So we need to understand that the impact of the refugee crisis, the first impact, is on the global south. Um, and so we have to work in partnership with uh, those countries in Africa and Asia and the Middle East where uh, these, these situations are having the greatest, the greatest impact. And I think there's a there's a deep concern that I have that uh, there's a fear I think in a number of countries that uh, the West is not really paying attention. The OECD countries, the advanced economies, have become more preoccupied with themselves as a result of COVID, less concerned with what's happening in other places, uh, and this tendency to isolationism and to nationalism which we see in many, many parts of the world is running contrary to where we need to be, frankly. We need to be um, engaged with each other. We need to be figuring out how to help one another, and we need to be figuring out how to ensure a, a strong and resilient recovery for the, for the world. And, and that is, that is going to take a, a, a different mindset than the ones that we've seen in place in a great many uh, power centers in the world. Right. So I mentioned in my introduction that you had uh, for several years, really, in Canada, been uh, responsible for special envoy uh, for affairs in Myanmar. I'm not hearing you, John. Myanmar is a place where uh, developments have gone in a bad direction uh, recently. And I wonder whether you could comment on how you think uh, things may go in in uh, in Myanmar, and you know, there's always the question uh, with regard to Myanmar uh, that many outsider non-experts have certainly uh, about what happened with Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, who was this kind of beacon of democratic, or we perceived as this beacon of democratic change, and was finally released from prison and. And then, you know, in her role as a leader in the in that subsequent period, uh, it seemed she was not as uh, you know, democratically inclined as many of us uh, had expected and hoped. But you know, she was under political pressures. There may be explanations. I wonder, as a kind of expert on Myanmar, what you would say about all that. Well, I think you know, whenever you project sainthood onto another individual. 
um, you're you're creating expectations which can never be met. Um, that's a, that's a simple re- a general statement that I I think is true. Um, Kofi Annan once said to me, he said, you know, uh, and I was talking to him because Kofi had a lot to do with what was going on in, in in Myanmar. He wrote a very good report on the Rohingya situation, and and he said, you know, you've got to remember, she's not a saint; she's a politician, uh, and I think that's important to remember. The the domestic pressure, uh, the domestic story uh, about the Rohingya inside Myanmar is a very tough one. Uh, Myanmar public opinion, the majority outside of Rakhine, where the Rohingya live, um, think that the Rohingya are a, a, a remnant of empire, that they're there because the British brought them in, that they're not really part of the country, they're not really part of the, the identity of the country, um, and they and they don't belong there. The, the, the reality is, of course, the Rohingya argue quite strongly that they've been there for a very long time, uh, that many of them have been there for, uh, for hundreds of years. And even those who came in as a result of the, of the British, uh, taking over the country and, and uniting it with the Indian empire, um, uh, came in at the, at the beginning of the 19th century, which for most of us is, <laughs> is quite a long time, uh, just so that it's, 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 it, it doesn't. It, it, it's 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 a necessary step for for Myanmar to embrace the Rohingya as as part of their country, um, and I think I think Aung San Suu Kyi. I mean, she appointed Kofi Annan to to write a report. She was trying to build uh, you know some support for that idea, uh, but I think she she felt that uh, that that she was being put in an impossible position, uh, and uh, was was very. Uh, obviously very upset with Western countries for having, in a sense, come up with magic solutions that they were not able to implement. And she wasn't able to implement because of what she felt were the internal barriers in her own country. My point about Aung San Suu Kyi is she's now been reelected. And, and, you know, many of us felt very strongly. I was, I mean, I was bitterly disappointed at a personal level when I saw her in The Hague uh, defending the army, defending the Tatmada. Uh, in terms of what they had done, presenting a what can only charitably described as a very unrealistic picture of uh, what was what had actually taken place uh, in Rakhine State uh, in 2017, uh, and 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 I think that just but you know you you can't simply live with your disappointments. You have to understand that realistically, she's been elected as leader, and uh, that's why I think it's so difficult for us to to us to not speak out in favor of her release and to say that we've got to get back on a, a track to civilian rule in, in Myanmar in the face of this, this terrible coup and, and the, uh, the killing of over 200 people, which as we speak today is, is where things stand. Uh, but I think it's always important to understand history and it's always important to understand um, the role that domestic politics plays in in how different actors are feel compelled to act in a certain in a certain way, um, that old saying that all politics is local, I think, is important for us to remember. Even as we discuss global affairs, it's important for us to understand that the, the domestic pressures that are on individual political leaders all the time.
Yeah, I was struck in this morning's New York Times, there was a piece about how the country has been basically uh, immobilized by people who are essentially striking against this regime. And I was very struck by the comment uh, that was quoted by, you know, a person, an ordinary person kind of on the street who said, well, I may be poor in money, but I'm rich in love for my country. And I mean, when you have a sentiment like that, you have to feel in some ways optimistic that things are going to turn in a, in a good direction. I wonder how you would you know, respond to that. Well, you know, in the early days after the coup, I was out and asked, you know, what can we do to, you know, what can we do? What can the West do? What can different countries do, et cetera? And I kept saying, we can do so much. But the reality is where I think the military have made a serious um, miscalculation is dramatically underestimating the resilience of, uh, the of the people of the country and how much has changed in the last 10 years. I mean, don't forget that the military, <clears throat> you know, systematically lied and, and browbeat people, threw them in jail, uh, tortured people, uh, and they kept coming back. Uh, they kept coming back to the street, uh, and, you know, even after the cyclone, which killed 150,000 people, which was never recognized by the regime, uh, the people kept, kept, on, kept on fighting. And so it was Jefferson who said that democracy is an infectious idea. And he was right. I think that the idea of democracy has taken hold in Myanmar and it will not let go. And I think that's the, that's the, 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 the miscalculation of which the, the military have, have proven to be guilty. I, I I do believe that uh, you know this 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 activity in the street, this general strike which is taking place, uh, the continuing struggle in a number of the ethnic areas in the north and the west and the east of the country. Uh, I think these are these are uh, these are all things which create enormous momentum for change, and I I, I don't think that momentum can be repressed by no matter how brutal the regime is, it's not going to go away. It's not going to stop. So I know you're ambassador to the United Nations, but the United Nations is located in the United States and Canada is located not far from the United States. Uh, and the previous four years, I think everyone would confirm have been a little rocky um, in terms of the relationship uh, but I wonder how you see, you know, the new relationship. I mean, this uh, fact that the Biden administration is going to be sending a bunch of uh, vaccines to Canada as well as to Mexico, you know, suggests that things are moving in a more positive direction. Uh, but I wonder how you would, you know, see the last four years and how, how things are going to move forward with this new administration. Well, I mean... I think everybody recognizes that the last four years were difficult. You know, we we developed a um, an approach to uh, foreign policy and to uh, our view of the world and our view of the of our relationship with the United States that was based on certain assumptions. And we've had those assumptions have built up slowly and steadily since 1945. Uh, and so every um, every Canadian government figured out a way. Uh, to develop a good a good working relationship with the United States government uh, that was very close in, in many 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 respects, um, 
And I think when President Trump was elected, uh, we had to come to grips with the fact that a president was elected um, who, on the basis of what he had said uh, before he was elected, uh, on the basis of how he conducted himself when he was elected, uh, was uh, so ba- so much um, enamored of the idea of America first that he really couldn't bring himself to comprehend the nature of uh, the relationship between Canada and the United States or between the United States and Mexico uh, that would be based on anything other than just uh, confrontation and, and, uh, and brute politics. And, and that was difficult for Canada because at one time, at one of the same time, we, we were attempting to salvage NAFTA, uh, we, which we did. Uh, and we salvaged the, the trading relationship, which was obviously critically important. But on so many other issues, what's going on in the UN? Uh, what's uh, what's happening in Europe? Uh, what should be you know the role of the rule of law globally? Uh, you know how the world should work, how it should operate, what should happen? Um, we were completely at odds with the American, with the Trump administration, with President Trump. Um, and it was difficult because, uh, I mean, you know, we walked out of G7 meetings, you know, there was then nothing was normal, not the way we'd ever seen it happen before. Uh, so to say that it was, it was tough is, a, is an understatement. But we were also polite. Uh, we, we didn't, you know, pick fights. Uh, we expressed differences of opinion, but we, you know, we carried on. Hoping for their time when uh, when some other approach would 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 come into play, uh, and I think it's fair to say that you know President Biden's election was was warmly greeted in the United in Canada um, because we felt that once again we had someone who understood us, who understood the relationship, who understood the need for dialogue and for conversation and for common approaches. Uh, and, uh, I, I think that's, that's the simple reality of the situation. Um, and, and of course, president Biden is, is, is representing his country. He's, he's going to advance the interests of the United States. Uh, he, he's going to, uh, take positions with which we might not agree from time to time. Uh, but I think one has to say that there's a sense of how close we are and how, uh, closely connected we are in every every conceivable way that that leads you to say that we've 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 got a neighbor <laughs> we don't have an adversary we have a neighbor and that's uh, that's for us as canadians that's critically important the relationship that we have with your country is the most important bilateral relationship we have our trading relationship but it's not just it's not just about trade and the money it's about uh, families and connections and cousins and people who've lived back and forth. And you and I were chatting before we started. You taught in the, you've taught in Canada. Uh, you have an association with a college that I have an association with at the University of Toronto. So, you know, there are just so many connections between Canadians and Americans. And um, we sensed that, you know, for an unhappy four-year period, we had somebody in office uh, who didn't care about it. And, and now we have somebody once again who does care about it. And I think that's that's an improvement, to put it mildly. I, I bet. 
Um, well, apropos my relationship with Canada, uh, you know, I, I did teach at the University of British Columbia for six years, a very pleasant experience, terrific university. Um, but I, in a certain sense, I think like most Americans, really, I didn't really know that much about Canada. And uh, one of the things that I learned when I during the time that I lived there was uh had to do with an issue that you've been very much involved in, and that is the indigenous peoples issue, what in Canada are referred to as First Nations people. And I just really had not understood or appreciated how important, uh, you know, how much space, so to speak, that issue took up in Canadian political life. And you know, we have a version of this issue, of course, in the United States. I mean, related to the same kind of groups of people uh, who, who were here before Europeans arrived. Um, but this is, of course, an international issue. I mean, we one of my earlier podcasts was with the grandson of Ralph Bunch, the namesake of our institute, uh, who runs an organization called the Unrepresented Nations and Peoples Organizations, which is not exclusively about indigenous people per se. But it, it, the point is, basically, it's a worldwide issue in Australia, for example, Um so I wonder whether you could talk a little bit about, you know, how Canada's experience, uh, you know, may have lessons for us in the United States, but but for other, you know, places dealing with these issues around the world. I think the issue is one that um, throughout my life uh, has really come to the fore uh, in Canadian consciousness, awareness, and uh, and politics. It's taken quite a long time for that to happen. I think if you and I were talking 30, 40 or 50 years ago, we, you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I think it, it, it's really it's something of which the country has become intensely aware. Uh, it's having, it's having an impact on all of us between 2013 and 2020. Uh, I, I was counsel at a law firm that worked exclusively on Indigenous issues. I taught Indigenous law and policy at the University of Toronto, uh, handled a number of negotiations and issues across the country, and, and, and that followed a long political career when Indigenous issues were very much part of, of what I had to deal with as Premier and as, uh, as a political leader in Canada. Uh, and I think really what's happened is, first of all, <clears throat> everything's about numbers. The fact is, is that the the, our, the proportion of Indigenous people in Canada compared to the U.S. is much greater, um, and in in very significant parts of the country, like British Columbia, um, the Indigenous people play a critical role in uh, in resource development, in uh, in in the overall life and work of the province, uh, and uh, th that's had a major impact. When the Canadian Constitution was repatriated in 1980, which was a big, significant event in the life of the country, um, the Constitution recognized the, uh, the, the, the existence of uh, treaty and Aboriginal rights, which um, then led the Supreme Court of Canada to play an increasingly active role in defining what those rights were and the impact that they would have on the rest of the country. And this has been a, a, a very uh, active process for 
for for Canada. It's been a very uh, a very live national debate. It's affected uh, everything from education to childcare to child welfare to uh, the, the rights of people, the resource development in Quebec and in Ontario and uh, all across the country. It's just it's an issue that's that's very much integrated into our national life. I, I think you'd have to say that, you know, we, as a country, we had an abysmal record of uh, creating residential schools, trying to obliterate indigenous uh, identity, uh, very much parallel to your situation in the, in the 19th, 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, and they're, they're nothing of which we can be proud, nothing of which we can turn but look back and say, you know, gee, didn't we do that well? Or that, you know, it, or there's no excuse for, for what happened. It was terrible. Um, and the challenges remain. They're very significant. Uh, more than half the indigenous population of Canada lives in cities now. So the, the indigenous condition in a number of cities across Canada remains, uh, uh, nowhere near to equality. We have a significant uh, indigenous population in prisons, uh, way out of line, all out of all proportion to uh, to their share of the population. So th- th- this is a this is an issue that that's at the heart of much of our politics. And uh, the prime minister has has said, you know, it's the most important issue in the country, uh, and I think he's right. I, I personally share that view. Um, I think the, the other reality is, is, as you've said, is that this is not something unique to Canada. Um, you, you have the United States, if you read de Tocqueville in the 19th century, the two issues that he said, you know, were, were, and he was writing in the 1830s and 40s, he said the two issues that are not going to go away are the, the issue of slavery and, and the issue of indigenous indigenous peoples. Because he was writing at the time that Andrew Jackson was was uh, making it very clear that there was no place for indigenous people in the southern United States and they should be moved, uh, exported to uh, Oklahoma or wherever. And some of the most moving passages in, in democracy in America are, are uh, uh, de Tocqueville's description of the condition of people who were uh, on what we now refer to as the Trail of Tears uh, between uh, Georgia and uh, and Oklahoma. So, you know, you have you have uh, issues. We have issues. The Australians, but right through the Americas. I mean, the whole story, the history of the Americas, is the the history of conquest, of pillage, of destruction, of disease, of poverty, of discrimination, uh, and now uh, a modern reality. How how do how does the modern world, with our commitments to human rights, our commitment to diversity and pluralism, uh, how do we include people? How do we change our, uh, the ways of the power structures so that the rights of indigenous people are taken more, more seriously? Uh, it is a global issue. And, and uh, the prime minister has asked me to, you know, establish uh, the strongest dialogues that we can internationally at the United Nations and elsewhere to, uh, to continue to make this a, a, an important question. And I think it's, uh, it's something that will be very much, uh, very much with us for our f- collective futures, uh, and one that uh, that we're going to have to continue to embrace as as uh, part of our identity. Um, yeah, it's a it's a big deal, uh, and, and it's become a big deal. There's lots of reasons how and why it has, uh, but it's it is a big deal, and it should be, frankly, because it's it's not something we can turn our turn away from. 
It's fascinating because I think, as you say, I mean, it's not the same, it doesn't take up the same amount of space in the political landscape of the United States as it does. I mean, I had not been aware that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau had referred to it or described it as the biggest political problem or biggest political issue in the in the country. Uh, but I, I did learn, certainly when I was up there, that it was much more important, much more prevalent uh, in the politics of the country than it was here. Uh, so on that note, I know you're a busy man and I don't want to keep you too long, but uh, I, I would be curious if there was one thing, you know, that you want Americans or you wish Americans knew about Canada that they don't. That's a good, it's a good question. And, and I, have to, I have to preface my answer by saying that, of course, there's a feeling in Canada that, you know, there's, it's sort of like a two-way mirror between the two countries. You know, we we like to think that we really understand you and we watch your television and we, you know, we come to f- go to Florida and California in the wintertime and we kind of know the country. We, we all have aunts and uncles who live somewhere in the United States. And so we kind of feel that, yeah, you know, we're, we're, we kind of know all about you. And, and one of the things that I've realized in coming to New York to, to live is that there's it's a ton about the United States that I don't, that I, didn't know and don't know and I'm, I'm learning and taking the opportunity to learn while I'm, while I'm here. Uh, but the second one is um, America is a um, very much a country that's preoccupied with itself. Um, this is not exclusive to the U S but it certainly is true of the U S and I, so I think that that's, that's, uh, that's something that I think is too bad uh, because uh, when a country loses a sense of curiosity about everybody else, um, you stop learning and you stop listening. And uh, I, I, I have always believed that learning and listening are there, and, and listening and learning are two of the most important things you can do in life. Uh, and so it's 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 critically important for us to try to to try to encourage uh, to try to encourage that. And I guess I would say that in general terms, I think the, the thing that I would like the most. Uh, for the United States to know about Canada is um, we we really want to establish a dialogue uh, between equals, uh, a, a dialogue between two countries that need to learn more about each other uh, and and need to uh, deepen that understanding because uh, we have gone through um, a moment of trauma in the relationship between our two countries that I think. Um, needs to be appreciated and understood. Now, there are many Americans who will say to me, well, you know, we've been through a period of trauma too. And I would say, yeah, but it, it's, 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 uh, you know, you've been able to deal with it. And, and we, we hope that, uh, you know, you'll still be there uh, once we get through the trauma together. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's been a rough four years. There's no question about it, but that's very helpful. Very interesting. And thanks for sharing that with us. That's it for today's episode of International Horizons. I want to thank Canada's UN Ambassador Bob Ray for sharing his insights about Canada's role in the world. Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Christo Voino for his technical assistance and to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song International Horizons as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.